and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast with me, Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. On this week's show, we take a look at two huge car makers, one old, one new. We discover a new acronym and look at the hard times in the hotel industry. And in the big investment, we examine investing in smaller UK companies. All right, then what is this new acronym you've been mentioning? So this was a story in the Financial Times this week. Uh, At one level, it sort of made me uh, smile. When I'd read it all, it did make me a little bit worried um, by the time I got to the end. But anyway, listen, it gets a bit complex, so bear with me. One of the measures used to assess a company's financial performance is something called EBITDA. Now, it sounds like something crazy, but it's not. It's actually just an acronym, and it stands for Earnings Before Interest, Tax, Depreciation, and amortization. So I guess that's all clear now. Not entirely. What does that mean? Well, put simply, it's the amount of money a company has earned before it pays any of those things. So if a company earned £2 million in revenue and it costs £1.5 million to make the goods it sells, you're left with a net income of £500,000, half a million pounds. But with EBITDA, you add some other things back onto this number so that you can get a measure of how profitable a company is before it has to pay those things. So that includes tax on your profits, interest on any loans you've taken out, depreciation, just in case you were wondering, is the loss in value of assets that you hold. So if you have machines in a factory and they get old and wear out, they lose value, just like you would uh, suffer depreciation on a car, for example. And amortization is a way of accounting, essentially, for the reducing value of a loan over a period of time. So EBITDA measure adds all of these costs back into your earnings number. So in our example, the £500,000 net earning number could be, and I'm making this up, but £750,000 EBITDA once you've done that calculation. Uh, still with me? Okay, just about. Why, why should I be interested in this? Well, the story this week is that uh, some companies have come up with a new measure, EBITDAC, with a C on the end, and of course the C stands for coronavirus. Okay, right, so they're adding back the losses caused by the virus. Right, basically, yes. So the example in the article I read, it's a German manufacturing company. Uh, They've added back 5.4 million euros into their first quarter profits based on the fact that it would have earned this money had it not been for the coronavirus, quite uh, bizarrely. Uh, And they're not the only ones. There's a Chicago-based building products company who's done something pretty similar. Okay, Sounds a bit unusual. What are people saying about it? Yeah, it is, and and rightly in my my view. But basically, people are saying it's a bit crazy. One finance association has come out and said that doing this should be resisted. And uh, I quote them, it's a bit ironic for companies to say we're adding back the effects of coronavirus to deal with the effect of coronavirus. Yeah, more than a bit ironic. Anyway, let's move on to something altogether a bit more tangible, the bricks and mortar business of hotels. What is happening there? Yeah, so this is quite a a sort of sad story in a way, and we've touched before on how much the hospitality sector is suffering. This one concerns budget hotel group Travel Lodge, who is basically telling its landlords, so the people it rents the hotel buildings from, 
that it needs a breather on paying its rent or it's going to have to file for bankruptcy. So how much of a breather are we talking about? Yeah, basically they're looking for a waiver of £146 million in rent. Uh, and that's despite the government saying that hotels could potentially reopen in July. Travel Lodge is saying that's even worse than they had expected. Right, what happens next? Well... Negotiations are still ongoing, but they've become quite heated, uh, apparently, and unsurprisingly, the building owners are reluctant to give up their income, really. Um, at the same time, if they uh, they don't do that and force the company to go bankrupt, to go into administration, then the chances of them getting any money back seem a bit lower. Um, the story continues, as they say. Okay, good stuff. Well, Marcus, you've been looking at the automotive uh, sector uh, and two Car makers in particular, what have you found? Yeah, so this is going to be a tale of two titans, Toyota and Tesla. First, I'm going to sum up the auto industry though broadly. So this is noticeable because it's quite important economically. The industry in the US, it represents about 3.5% of GDP, its total economic output, 7% in the EU and about 10% in China. And it has tentacles in lots of other industries as well. So upstream, there's steel and chemicals and textile, downstream from its operations, all the distribution, repairs, servicing, everything that's sort of attached to the car industry in that way. Fortunately, the story here is it's been totally ravaged by COVID-19. So why is it so susceptible to COVID-19? Well, demand has evaporated. No one can go to forecourts or showrooms, so there's, there's no one buying anything there. But also on the supply chain, there's quite a lot of disruption as well. And that's for a couple of reasons. First, because its businesses tend to have quite complex operations distribution, they tend to sprawl the globe, so there's big trade disruptions there. Um, and it's also very people-intensive. So in Europe, there's about 14 million employees. In the US, about 8 million. In China, about 5 million, and so forth. So shelter-at-home orders have just wiped out the ability of its workforce to come to work. Okay, tell me what's going on at Toyota. Well, in Toyota, this is one of the... the Toyota is one of the strongest incumbents in the industry, so it flirts with VW as the top producer of cars, each each rolling off around 10 million cars of the production lines every year. And what's going on is it's offered some full-year guidance to the market on how it expects coronavirus to sort of affect its profits, which is perhaps a bit of a surprise. There's a lot of its competitors don't really want to do this because it's so un uncertain. Um, just as a side note as well, companies offer guidance to investors um, because what they don't want is any nasty surprises for investors when they release their actual results because it's the nasty surprises that lead to these big share price swings. They're quite nasty. And what guidance did they offer? Operating profits for the year for the next 12 months are going to be down 80% from the previous year. So 3.8 billion pounds roughly versus the 18.3 billion it took in the previous year. Has this seriously impacted the share price? No, it had taken a hit some months back because people perceived the auto industry would be quite badly affected. So a lot of share prices did. But the reaction to this was meh because the analysts are actually seeing a couple of positives, which is a bit of the story here. Toyota told them that it expects demand to recover in 2021, which is which is quick, <laughs> um, but also that it had no plans to cut back any of its spending 
in research and other planned projects, what they refer to as capex or capital expenditure. This is about 8.3 billion in spend. So this was seen by the markets, quite a strong signal of confidence, these two things. Um, and especially as it comes in the week that Toyota has resumed production in the UK and the US. Okay, let's move on to a sort of uh, a new money car company. What about Tesla? Yeah, it's certainly eager to get back to work. Um, CEO's been having some public spats again with authorities. Look, just to recap, I'm sure you all know about Tesla, but it's one of these rarities. It's an upstart manufacturer in the auto industry. You don't see t- tend to see many of those because of the, the massive um, amount of money you require, capital requirements, and also the labor requirements um, of the industry. Um, and also, even though it's not rolling off anywhere near the amount of cars that top manufacturers do, because it is a pure play electric vehicle maker, and it's pretty fresh and responsive, investors think it's best place to take advantage of the very, very much the changing demand within the car industry uh, towards electric because of things like sustainability issues, which some also believe will be accelerated because of the crisis. Um, so it means that the value, the market value of Tesla is is you know perhaps surprisingly more than the totality of the big three manufacturers in the US, which is Ford, GM and Fiat Chrysler, which is quite remarkable really. It's a real play into the future of what they expect to happen in the industry. Um, and Elon Musk, its CEO, is fairly well known. He's He doesn't mind speaking his mind. He was once seen as a bit of a maverick against prescribed norms um, back in day when he just started with it all. Um, but more recently, he seems to be sort of turning into a bit more of a self-grandiosing, slightly arrogant billionaire that you'd expect of a man of his wealth and power. Why has he been uh, fighting the authorities then? Yeah, he's jumped on a few back-to-work bandwagons as the shelter-in-place is quite affecting him quite severely. Um, and he tried to get, last Friday, he tried to get permission to get 10,000 workers back to his big giga factory, as he calls it, in Fremont in California, because the Californian authorities said, you know, these types of business can reopen. However, county rules supersede this. And the county said, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. So he sued, made a big fuss. Trump Republicans have loved that and reopened on Monday anyway. And have they arrested him? No. Um, probably because of Trump's support. The president tweeted him, um, tweeted about him and this um, personally, but also because he he's threatened to relocate Tesla to Nevada or Texas, which means suddenly he seems to have developed some rails to roll this factory wherever the political necessity requires it. Um, but it was enough, and the company, the county, the county, sorry, has gobbled up a big old slice of humble pie and given the green light, you know, to be Twitter powerful. Okay, and on to the big investment this week, and we're going to talk about UK smaller companies. Now, um, how do you define smaller companies? have a look at what the funds are exactly, um, what the strategy is. If it's very focused on the sort of micro-sized company, which is defined as having a total value of, say, in the low hundreds of millions, um, it's very focused there versus others, which tend, which can be more broad. They might say micro, small and mid-sized, so go all the way up to, say, a value of around $2 billion. Um, that that's obviously going to present different risks. You know, the, the more focused on, on, on the smaller businesses it is, then the, the riskier the potential strategy is. Um, 
So what's the advantage of investing in, in smaller companies? Well, when you look at historical returns, there's data that goes back to 1955 here in the UK that shows us that if you invest for the long term, which it's got to be because of the risks involved, then smaller companies can produce um, uh, much bigger returns than investing in larger companies. And if you think about the dynamics of a company, you can understand why. It's much easier to turn a pound of revenue into two pounds than a hundred pounds into 200 pounds but with that comes more risk because the dynamic of a smaller business is is that it has fewer product lines it might have much much more volatile revenue streams uh, that are easier to lose less business process involved too much reliance on the owner etc etc so it's a buyer beware story really and you know where are they presently um the thing about smaller companies is they tend to be sold off quite heavily at the uh, as investors see an onset of a crisis and clearly clearly this one has been one of those um and what they also tend to talk about is the value of stocks okay um so they, they often in order to be able to assess whether a share price is maybe good value or too expensive or, or looking cheap is they compare it its price to other metrics things like um the earnings of the company per share or let's say it's accounting book value of assets and by having a look at those metrics and then comparing it to other competitors in its field or larger companies or other sectors or markets or whatever, you can get an idea of relative value, an idea of relative value. Who knows what will happen in the future? Um, so what the small cap managers are saying is, you know, these sold off quite heavily. They haven't recovered as much as the larger companies or other markets. So there could be good value in that. But as Adrian Locott mentioned, there's some risk involved in this. They're also a lot more susceptible to further falls, to being affected by bad economic data as it comes out. So it's a buy beware story. But in short, the investment case is it seems like they're good value at the moment. If you leave it for a long time, we're talking 10 years at least here, then you could potentially get some good returns over, over the long term. Simon, what have you got? Well, there's plenty to choose from across the three major types of investment vehicle, the ETF, the Exchange Traded Fund, the Investment Trust, and the Managed Fund. Let's start with an ETF, the iShares UK uh, Small Cap ETF, which, as you might expect, uh, it tracks the share prices of small companies in the UK. And in this instance, there are around 250 of them, 253, in fact, at the end of April. And the biggest uh, of those uh, companies is Pennon Group, which I hadn't heard of, but they provide environmental infrastructure services, which in English means things like water, uh, wastewater management, that sort of thing. Uh, also in the top 10 is Rightmove, the estate agent, Tate and Lyle, uh, the sugar company. It's a smaller fund. It's about £200 million uh, in size. The charges at the moment are 0.58% per annum. That's the ongoing charges number. And it's run by this company, BlackRock, colossal company, and they own the iShares brand. Okay, Simon, what have you got in the funds bucket? Well, as an example of a managed fund, I've chosen uh, Merian, which is a fund manager we haven't really talked about, um, but basically it was previously part of old mutual uh, investors. The fund I've chosen is the Merian UK Smaller Companies Fund, which is quite a bit bigger than the ETF we just looked at, at just over a billion pounds in size. It's managed by a guy called Dan Nichols, 
and has been since 2004, having launched itself, uh, the fund, in 2001. The charges are quite a bit higher than the ETF we just looked at, at 1.9% a year, uh, and there are currently about 80 holding holding, should I say, in the fund, including names like Boohoo, the fast fashion company, uh, One Savings, which is a specialist bank, and the Hut Group, which uh, owns, amongst other things, MyProtein, uh, ProBike Kit, and Mankind. There is also a similar but different version of this fund called the UK Smaller Companies Focus Fund. That's run by Nick Williamson, and that actually has a much shorter list, about 57 investments at the moment. Okay, and an investment trust? Well, here we're going to go against the conventional wisdom a little bit uh, that says that investing in smaller companies is only for people wanting to grow their capital, their initial money, uh, as I found one of a number of investment trusts that actually offer an income from UK smaller companies. This one is the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust. Uh, it's been running since 1992, and it's currently providing an income, a yield, of about 3.5%. Now, that might not sound uh, much, but it has been growing quite quickly. It's grown by 5% every year over the last five years. It pays that income quarterly. Uh, in terms of size, it's a relative minnow. It's uh, £71 million in size, and the charges are currently 1.2% a year. In terms of the portfolio, its biggest holding, about 6% of that money uh, of the trust, is Assura PLC, which runs primary uh, medical centres, primary care medical centres, should I say, in the UK. Interesting. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Before we go, if there is a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer, then please do email us at support at steps to investing is the address. That's support at steps to investing. And we'll do our level best to help on a future show. Stay alert or stay safe and join us again next time. Goodbye.